This is the 18th third Sunday of Advent that I've served as a pastor of a church. I grew up in the church. I went to seminary. I've preached on this actual text, according to my records, four other times. And yet, as I read and prayed over this text and studied in preparation for writing this sermon, I heard, or finally understood for the first time, that John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, this is not how the story is told in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist never baptizes Jesus. How about that? 43 years old, and this is completely new information to me. Perhaps some of you listening are questioning whether anything more I have to say is worth your time because you thought, well, everybody knew that John the Baptist doesn't baptize Jesus in the Gospel of John, but this is the kind of thing that just floors me about Scripture, about being a follower of Jesus, about being human. There's always more to learn. There's always more out there to spark your imagination, to thrill your passion, to inform your vast ignorance. You don't know what you don't know, and so we persist in knowing ourselves, our neighbors, and most of all, our God. So what does John the Baptist do in the Gospel of John if not baptize? Now, to be clear, he talks about baptizing other people in water for the sake of repentance, just not Jesus. One article I read suggested that John the Baptist could, in John's Gospel, be called John the witness. I like that because that's what his primary purpose is in this gospel, to testify, to be a witness to the who. Who is Jesus? John the witness is there to tell you, put there by God. Other than Jesus, there is one person in the gospel of John who is said to be sent from God. That's how our text for today started in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. What is a witness after all? Maybe you need the signature of a witness on a legal document. Their purpose? To attest to a fact, an event, or a moment, right? Yep, that person signed that document. I was there, I saw it happen. At a trial, a witness offers evidence. A witness's testimony is a verbal or written account of what they know. They saw it, or they heard it, or they know about it, whatever it is. Now, a jury might ask how they know what they know. For John, that's already been answered. He was sent from God for this, testifying Being a witness is his purpose. So what does John know? What is his testimony? Well, in short, he knows who Jesus is. Now, that might sound underwhelming, but knowing who Jesus is is actually the question John the Gospel writer is trying to answer. John the Gospel writer is not writing a history in hopes of providing an orderly account of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. John's gospel is not weighing in on which part of the early church is right when it comes to this or that controversy. The focus of John's gospel is quite narrow. It tries to answer one question, really. Who is Jesus? And John, the gospel writer, just tells us, the readers, right away in the first chapter who Jesus is. Jesus is the Word, there from the beginning, Jesus is the life, 
and the light of all people. Jesus is the Word become flesh. Jesus is God, the only Son close to God the Father's heart. So in these first 18 verses of John's Gospel, the Gospel writer just tells us who Jesus is. This is not a suspense thriller where you don't know and can't know what's happening until the very end. Those are fun books, right? But this story is told in such a way where the reader is let in on everything the author knows right away. The suspense in the Gospel of John comes not from trying to figure out who Jesus is, but from seeing whether this person or that group is going to believe it as they encounter this good news. John, the Gospel writer, can't say bigger things about Jesus. He can't say them any earlier in his story than he does. The first things we're told are that Jesus has always been, is God, and has come to bring grace and truth to all. Like, there's no beating around the bush here. John, the Gospel writer, does not bury the lead. John, the witness, gets right after it just as swiftly. The leaders of the Jews those who are responsible for the temple and what is taught in the temple, they've obviously heard about the ministry of John the Baptizer in Bethany across the Jordan River, so they send priests and Levites from Jerusalem to John. And these priests have been sent to ask the gospel's most important question, who are you? I'm not the Messiah, I'll tell you that. What then? Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. So who are you? We have to be able to say something to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? And of course, John the Witness has nothing to say about himself. His purpose is not about himself. We've already been told by the Gospel writer that this John was sent by God to say things about the light, the truth, Jesus. That's why John doesn't respond to these guys by offering the story of his own birth, childhood, and ministry, first job, first car, first love. That's not what John the Witness wants to talk about. John the Witness says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Then John the Witness tries to explain the enormity of who is coming. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. The Pharisees send some minor priests to go check out what this baptizer is up to in the Jordan at Bethany. Find out who this guy thinks he is. But John the witness wants to immediately make something clear. They're asking the wrong question. They're thinking far too small. I remember in high school, my church sent a bunch of us to New Orleans for a youth gathering. Twelve or fifteen of us, I'm not exactly sure. Whether you've been to New Orleans or not, you know New Orleans is famous for lots of things, but food is one of them. Creole cooking, gumbo, jambalaya, crawfish etouffee, things you don't get just on any street corner everywhere. At least when you go to New Orleans, you've got to try a beignet or a bananas foster, right? So here we are. A dozen or so hicks from the sticks of the Northwoods in Wisconsin come all the way down the river to Louisiana and when given two hours and $20, which back in the 1800s, of course, was a lot of money, to spend on food wherever we wanted to go, 
You know where the largest group of us went? McDonald's. Yeah, that's right. Or here's another one. I grew up watching The Price is Right whenever I could, which was usually either a sick day, you know, couldn't go to school, or maybe it was during the summer or at Grandma and Grandpa's house over the holidays or whatever. I loved guessing the prices to see if I would be able to get up on stage if I had been in the studio audience, right? And imagining how many times I could get that wheel to spin around. Have you ever wondered how many times you could get the wheel to spin around? I've decided I'd be between three and four. Anyway, I remember Bob Barker turning to one contestant after they'd run up on stage, and Bob knew that behind the wall, they were about to show a trip to some exotic place I don't remember where. And so he asked the contestant, where are you from? And she said, Oregon. And he said, if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? And of course, her eyes lit up and the crowd took a gasp. <gasps> we know it's coming, right? And they knew a huge dream vacation was about to be unveiled. Where would you want to go? And this woman from Oregon looked at Bob and said, Portland. Really? <laughs> or here's my last one. I saw this as a meme last year, or maybe it was the year before on Facebook. A family were opening their gifts Christmas morning. And the father looked very proud of his thoughtful gifts as he handed them out to his two children and his wife. Each box was about the same size, pretty small, wrapped with the same paper. And the, the, the first gift was given to this boy, and he opened his box, and they were socks. One pair of nice socks. And the dad beamed. I saw you had a hole in one of your pairs of socks. And the son was like, yeah, thanks. And then the daughter opened hers, and she too had been given socks. And the dad once again was smiling from ear to ear. You're welcome, he said. Now it was mom's turn, and she looked almost angry. <laughs> Her forced smile was not a very good reflection of his eager anticipation. Obviously, she'd come to expect her own brand new pair of socks not the diamond earrings that were actually in her box. Who is Jesus? As a sinner, what do you expect Jesus can do for you? Are your expectations at the level of socks or diamonds? As a human in this broken world, seeing all the brokenness, experiencing lots of the brokenness, what do you hope Jesus can be for everyone, for everything? Will it be as, a, as good as a trip to Eau Claire? Nothing against Eau Claire. Or perhaps a bit beyond, maybe, what we can imagine? Advent is a season of waiting and dreaming and opening ourselves up to the good news of Jesus. What do you think the good news is? How good do you dare believe it is? Are you open to the good news and simply expecting socks? If we imagine the good news of Jesus providing a feast to all creation who are hungry and thirsty, does that feast in your imagination happen at McDonald's? The Pharisees are asking John the witness whether he is the Messiah, Elijah, or the prophet. And these aren't terrible questions, actually. There's nothing inherently wrong 
with socks, Portland or McDonald's, but John the Witness has been sent by God to proclaim something so much bigger, so much broader, so much more mysterious, abundant life, eternal, resurrected from death, reconciled to God for all the world, through whom all that is broken will be mended, healed. This one is so much more than all these small categories, than these limited expectations. Open yourselves up further than feels comfortable. Because I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. We crave for the healing of the nations and reconciliation among enemies we know in our families and among our friends. We seek physical healing, respite from grief, and these are all worthy subjects of our prayers for sure. But what we speak of during Advent, what we dream of as followers of Jesus, goes way beyond any pain, suffering, or worry we know in this life. So much more glorious, peace-filled, joy-filled, so much more love than we can begin to grasp. May we each be a witness to the little we have seen, the grace, the mercy, the love we have known, so that all the world may come to believe that Jesus is coming. The light and life of all the people is coming. Thanks be to God. Amen.